this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. This is God's word. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word to us this morning. Would you pray with me? Our great God, we come to you this morning as a people who desperately need to hear a word from you. We thank you that you've given us one. Would you now send the Holy Spirit to us? Would you open the eyes of our hearts and give us ears to hear your truth? Would you make us more and more like Jesus? Teach us what to believe. Show us how to live as your people. And we pray all of these things for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen. What story do you tell yourself about the world? What story do you tell yourself about the way the world actually works? The way the world is. If you've been around me for any period of time, you'll know I use the word story a lot. Uh, Sometimes it's helpful to kind of step aside for a moment and just uh, clarify what I mean when I use that word. When I say the word story, I don't mean one of those made-up things that you read to your kids before you go to bed. That's not what I mean by story. Story is, I think, the way that we understand the world. Story is the way that we make meaning and the way that we interpret what's happening to us. So, for instance, if you're driving down the road and you hear a loud bang and your car starts driving funny, what do you do? You start telling yourself stories in your head until one seems to make sense. Did I hit a deer? Probably not. Did I hit a car? Probably not. Did I hit a pothole and pop a tire? That makes sense. We make meaning for ourselves. We understand the world by telling ourselves stories. So my question for us this morning is what story are you telling yourself about the world in which you live? What story do you tell yourself about how the world works? Maybe it's a story where it's getting better and better. Everything's just great. Maybe it's a story where things are getting worse and worse. 
Maybe it's a story where the world is kind of a mixed bag and you get some good and you get some bad and you hope the, the good outweighs the bad. Maybe it's a story where power is the only thing that really counts. And because of that, injustice just runs rampant through the world. Maybe yours is a story of beauty and of love. And that's the way the world works. Maybe in your story, you're really, really significant or really, really insignificant. Maybe you're a hero. Maybe you think you're the villain of a story. Maybe in your story, your suffering matters a whole, whole lot and pain is all there really is in this world. Or maybe not. So the question is, what story are we telling ourselves about the world? Our passage this morning helps us because it shows us two things. The first thing that it shows us is it gives us a snapshot of the way the world is. It gives us a snapshot of what is happening in the world. And that snapshot then provides a backdrop to understand the kind of story that we're a part of. So we get a snapshot of the world, and then that shows us a little bit more about what kind of story we are a part of. And the question that we're going to have to ask this morning, is this story a story worth entrusting ourselves to? Is this story one worth uh, inhabiting, worth entrusting ourselves to? Is this story worth living in light of, the story that Scripture gives us? And the answer to that question is probably the most important answer you can have. Because it's going to affect everything. It's going to affect how you experience the world. It's going to affect how you lean into the world, how you understand your life, how you receive the things that happen to you. It's all based on the question, is the story that the Bible tells us worth entrusting ourselves to? So let's jump right in. Let's look at this snapshot of the world that Isaiah 9, 2 through 7 gives us. And to get at that, what I want to do is I want to reread verses 2 through 5. And I'm going to try to kind of highlight with my voice uh, words that suggest something about the world we live in. Uh, but I want you to listen for them as well. Listen for words that say something about the world we live in. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Did you hear the way the world is described, even if it was just implicit in that text? It's described as a world of darkness, a world even of deep darkness. In the, in the Hebrew, those are actually two different words. The first word is darkness like you would find at nighttime. The second word is this idea of deep shadows. So this world that we're a part of is a world of darkness, a world of deep shadow. But it's also, again, look down at verse 4, where there's a yoke of burden on people. There is oppression on people. Uh, there's, a rod being, there's a rod striking people in an oppressive way. Even more than that, in verse 5, there is violence. There is bloodshed. There is warfare and battle. 
And this is not an encouraging picture of the world. This is a picture of a world that is broken, a world that is racked by the effects of sin, a world in which pain and suffering are realities. This is a world that is marked by inconsolable things. That's what one author describes them as, inconsolable things. If you were in the Advent Sunday School class last week, we talked about these uh, just a little bit. But let me just tell you what I mean by inconsolable things. Uh, This author says, the inconsolable things are the sins and the miseries that will not be eradicated until heaven comes home. The things that only Jesus and no one of us can overcome. We cannot expect to change what Jesus has left unfixed for the moment. The picture that Isaiah 9 paints for us is a world marked by inconsolable things, by pain, by suffering, by death. And what I want to say is that while that is not an encouraging place to live, this world, there is encouragement in those words for us. And that encouragement is this. There is no one on earth who is more realistic about the brokenness of this world than God is. There is no one on earth who is more realistic about the brokenness of this world than God is. God does not act like this world is fine and we just need to stop whining and get on with it. That's not what our God says to us. God sees sin. He sees evil and death and brokenness and sickness, and God hates it. He hates those things. Those are not the way it's supposed to be. That is not the way this world was designed to be. At the same time, we have to acknowledge that this world is not all evil. Right? It's not all pain and suffering and death. We get glimpses in this world of beauty, of goodness, of kindness, of truth. We experience real pleasures in this life, don't we? We, Things like sunsets. I mean, a sunset is simply gratuitous beauty. There's no need for it to be beautiful, but it is. We eat good food. We read beautiful works of poetry and literature. The book of Ecclesiastes actually tells us that it's good for us to find appropriate enjoyment in the pleasures of this life. And if we're honest, that's why we really get up in the morning, isn't it? If our lives were only marked by insufferable toil and pain and sickness and death, we wouldn't even get out of bed in the morning. But in fact, there is goodness in this world. And so we get married and we have kids and we do work that we enjoy and we eat good food and we drink good wine because there are pleasures in this life. Now the reality of the fact that there is some goodness in this world doesn't diminish our pain. It's only to say that this world is a mixed bag. It's incomplete. Beauty and ugliness coexist in this life, along with life and death and pain and pleasure and good and evil. So what do we do with this world? How do we respond to the brokenness of the world while we wait on the return of a king who's going to set all things right? I think that our responsibility is simply to feel the tension. 
We have to feel that tension. In other words, we need to feel acutely the brokenness of this world. The pain is real. The brokenness is, is real. But we also have to recognize the moments of beauty. We have to recognize the moments of goodness, the moments of truth. And when we do that, we realize something. This tension actually just points us beyond ourselves. It points us beyond our limited perspective, and it shows us that pain and pleasure actually both serve the same purpose in the Christian life in this world that is incomplete and mixed. You see, the answer to pain is not more pleasure, right? The pleasure that we experience in life is still incomplete. It's not fully satisfying. What, what the pain and the pleasure both show us is our need to cultivate longing. Longing is what pain and pleasure both show us. We need to cultivate a yearning for something more permanent than the pleasures of this life and something better than the evil and the suffering we experience. This is something that if, if I would say God has been teaching me one thing over the past few months, this would probably be it. Um, the need for us to cultivate longing in the midst of both life's pain and life's pleasure. And I think the best tutor, if we think about um, longing, uh, is actually C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote about this an awful lot. He describes this longing uh, beautifully. He says this. He says, the inconsolable longing in the heart, for we know what, I'm sorry, for we know not what. So we're trying to cultivate an inconsolable longing, for we know not what. He also calls this longing a golden echo of something that we don't know. Um, so this is the kind of longing we're seeking to cultivate, where the pain in this world shows us that we want a world made right, and the pleasure of this world shows us a taste of what a world made right might look like. Both of them are pointing us to long for a world made right. Let me give you a few examples of kind of unpacking this um, I'm going to give you two more quotes from C.S. Lewis because I love C.S. Lewis. And um, if you don't, I'm sorry. I'm going to read these quotes. Um, I'm also going to give you a, a little quote from a story that I'm reading right now that I think captures this um, on an existential level, on an experiential level. So here's the first quote from C.S. Lewis. This is one of his letters. He says, All joy emphasizes our pilgrim status, always reminds beckons and awakens desires. Our best havings are wantings. Our best havings are wantings. Isn't that beautiful? So the best things that we have in this life really only leave us wanting things that are more permanent, more eternal, a world made right. Uh, and another place uh, in his famous story, Till We Have Faces, one of the characters experiences something beautiful. Uh, and is reflecting upon the experience of this beauty. Uh, and the character says this, It almost hurt me. It almost hurt me. Like a bird in a cage when the other birds of its kind are flying home. To find the place where all the beauty came from. My country. The place where I ought to have been born. It was a longing for home. A longing for home. 
that ache, that longing that he feels, a longing for home. The other uh, clip I want to give you here is from uh, Andrew Peterson. Uh, He's a singer, songwriter. Uh, John Paul played one of his songs in Advent Sunday School, if you were there. Uh, He also has written a series of um, novels for kids uh, called The Wing Feather Saga, which are wonderful. I highly recommend to anyone. Um, There's a lot of funny names uh, in the the little clip. I'm going to give you the little uh, snippet here. Um, You don't need to know anything about any of the people, uh, except for these two sentences of context. Um, This is a people that are oppressed by a brutal and evil um, group of kings, uh, a a brutal and evil um, overlord. So it's a group of people who are oppressed, and one time a year, they gather for one moment of beauty, and that is they go to the cliffs outside their town, and they listen to the song of the sea dragons, one time a year. It's a beautiful moment, the rest of the time. They live in fear, and they are oppressed. The main character's name is Janner, uh, and he kind of reflects here. Uh, but listen to what he says. At that moment, the dragon song rose into the air on a bright wind and filled the people gathered on the cliffs with a thousand feelings, some peaceful, some exhilarating, all more alive than usual. A middle-aged man named Rose's Bus Nicefellow, who had spent his life balancing records for the famed button merchant Osbeck Osbeckson of Torboro, decided he wouldn't spend one more day working behind a desk. He had always wanted to sail. Mr. Alep Broom, who was sitting beside Ferenia Swapleton, turned to her and whispered that he'd secretly loved her for years. Mayor Blagus silently swore he'd never again pick his nose. All of the passion and sadness and joy of those who listened wound into one common strand of feeling that was to Janner like homesickness, though he couldn't think why. He was just a short walk from the only home he'd ever known. It felt like homesickness. Have you ever felt longing like that? A longing that feels like you want to be home even if you're sitting in your living room. Maybe you felt that in a hospital room where a loved one lay sick or dying. A longing for a world made right where sickness and illness and death are no longer realities. Maybe you felt that in a moment of joy, sitting around a dinner table with friends and family and laughing. And even as you laugh, realizing that there's still something more, a sense of homesickness, even at home. That's the kind of longing that we're talking about here. That is the proper response to the world that Isaiah 9 paints for us. Um, This is a longing for a true home, a longing for the world made right. And so this mixed world, this incomplete world where pain and pleasure and life and death and beauty and evil go next to one another, that is the backdrop to the rest of our passage. It's the backdrop. It it sets the context. You see, the beautiful and broken world that we live in is the world in which our story takes place. It's the world in which God acts decisively to end the brokenness. That's our story. God has acted decisively to end the brokenness. Well, how does he do that? Look at verse 6. To end the brokenness, God sends a child, 
To us, a child is born. Not just a child, a son. A son is given. This isn't an ordinary kid. We find out this is a king. Uh, The government shall be upon his shoulder. And he's not just an ordinary king. Look at how the king is described. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. He is wise in his counsel. He is mighty God. He seems to even be divine. The everlasting father, the prince of peace, a king who brings peace throughout his kingdom. This is not a picture of a mediocre leader. This is not the Diet Coke of leaders for ancient Israel. This isn't James Buchanan or Franklin Pierce. You ever heard of them? According to Wikipedia, they are the least significant presidents in United States history. No one's heard of them. Maybe two. This is not an insignificant leader. This isn't even just a good king. This is something bigger than that. This is a king who brings light to people in darkness. A king who breaks the rod of the oppressor, the tool that is used to oppress people. They're being struck with a rod. He breaks that rod. This is a a king who burns the blood-stained garments of violent warriors. A king who establishes a kingdom that increases eternally in size and in peace. This is a king who rules with justice and righteousness. Not just a good king, something bigger, not just someone setting up a just government. This is a picture of the world being made right. You see, ours is a story in which God decisively acts by sending a king who establishes a kingdom, and that kingdom makes the world new, a broken world made new. If we understand that story, it will absolutely change the way that we experience the world. You see, we've already said that both the good things we experience and the bad things we experience both serve to stir up in us a longing. Both make us want the world made right. Well, the story that we just read, the story that Isaiah 9 paints for us, puts a name to that longing. It puts a name to what it is that we actually want. We long for a kingdom. We long for this kingdom. We long for this kingdom that that makes the world right. We long for our true home. And that's why the feeling when we experience both bad and good still feels like homesickness. Because we're not in our true home yet. We're not yet in this kingdom where the world is made right. Now, at the same time, the best things in this life show us that this kingdom is in some measure here already. You see, the beauty and the justice and the peace and the kindness, those things show us that God's kingdom has already been established. Right? The son was born. The king was given. Jesus came. These things have begun. This kingdom is doing what verse 7 promises right now. That is, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is a kingdom that is eternally increasing in size and in peace. Now, I know some of you here might be a little concerned about big government. Got bad news. Uh, The kingdom is big, and it's getting bigger. This is the best big government in the history of the world, though. And the best things we experience in this life give us a taste of this kingdom. 
the kingdom is established. But you see, the brokenness of this world reminds us that the kingdom has not yet come in full. The kingdom has not yet been ushered in fully. You see, Jesus reigns over heaven and over earth, but God has chosen to allow the inconsolable things to remain for a time. That's the world in which we live. The kingdom has been established, but it's not yet come in full. Theologians call this tension, uh, or call this the tension between the already and the not yet. You see, the kingdom has already been established, but it has not yet come in full. Uh, Traditionally, the church has celebrated and reflected on that tension in the season of Advent. Uh, That's why we're talking about it uh, today. Uh, The tension between the already and the not yet. So, for instance, we sang the song Joy to the World this morning. Joy to the World is actually a song about Christ's second coming. It's a song about Christ coming to make the world afresh. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. That's what joy to the world is about. You know who I have found really understands this tension well and is kind of happy to live in it? Kids. Kids are really good at this. I don't know why kids are so good at this. Um, It's probably some combination of them being vulnerable and also not cynical. But they're happy to live in light of this tension. And the other day, one of my own children drove this home for me. We keep a guitar in our living room, and uh, my daughter Audrey went up to it, with a, picked up the guitar pick, and started strumming it. And she sang the first verse of Joy to the World. And it was kind of a cute little moment. Then she sang a second verse, not the second verse, a second verse, uh, one that she made up. Uh, my wife and I weren't quite clear on what the beginning of the verse was, but we heard the ending, and it had some dynamite theology. I'll sing it to you. And I apologize for that. (laughs) It went like this. See if I can get it. He knows about the bad guys. He knows about the bad guys. But he, but he, but he is king. See? He she got it. Right? She gets it. She's happy to live in the tension. My my CD is available on the (laughs) table in the lobby. But she gets it. Right? She gets that, that there is a God who sees evil. Like he knows about the bad guys, but he's still king. He's still king. That's the tension that we're living in light of. God has established his kingdom. He has already acted decisively to end the brokenness. But the kingdom has not yet come in full. The brokenness is not yet completely erased. If we understand the story, not only does it change the way we experience the world, it changes the way that we lean into the world, the way that we participate with God on his mission. You see, as citizens of the kingdom, we are sent into a broken world to tell this broken world that the brokenness has been put on notice. You see, we enter into darkness not because we're going to overthrow the darkness, but because the darkness is already defeated. We push back on injustice and oppression, not because we can eradicate those things, but because we serve a just king who's coming back to do just that. We stand against violence and we stand against bloodshed, not because we can end those things, but because our king has already struck the decisive blow against worldly violence. But the fact of the matter is that none of this actually matters if Jesus plays by the same rules as the world. 
None of this matters if Jesus is simply playing by the same rules as the world. You see, if Jesus overthrows darkness and oppression and violence by simply being stronger, then all we really have is a hero. All we have is a hero, not a savior. But the good news for us this morning is this. King Jesus does not play by the world's rules. King Jesus comes and subverts the world's brokenness. You see, our king conquers not through strength, but through weakness. Jesus is not Superman riding in and conquering the darkness from outside and breaking the rod of the oppressor over his knee and overthrowing mighty warriors by kicking tail and taking names. That's not how Jesus does it. Our king conquers by being conquered. Our king conquers by being conquered. You see, Jesus went into the darkness, and in the darkness, he was crucified, and he died there. You see, the rod of the oppressor, he didn't break over his knee. That rod struck him, and it broke over his back. And the blood-stained garments that were rolled and burned as fuel for the fire were not the, the warriors that he had slain. Those were his blood-stained garments. That was his blood that was shed. That was his blood that was spilled. You see, it's the cross that shows us the true nature of the kingdom and the true nature of the story. Because this kingdom is not a place for chest-thumping arrogance. It's not a place for triumphalism. It's not a place to be impressed with our own qualifications. It's not a place for boasting. You see, the glorious kingdom established by Christ is a kingdom where the king of the universe took on to himself all of the inconsolable things. The king of the universe took on himself pain and death and tears and sickness and betrayal and rejection. And he did this to deal with what is in fact our ultimate problem. Sin. Sin is our ultimate problem. Sin is our rebellion against our creator and our king. And it is the true and only cause of the inconsolable things. All of the sadness, all of the evil, all of the death, all of the destruction in this world comes from sin. But because Jesus dealt with sin on the cross, in this life we can now have a taste of our true home. Because sin and death have been dealt with, we can have a taste of the world set to rights of what this kingdom will ultimately look like. And in that kingdom, every longing will be satisfied. Everything sad will come untrue. Every inconsolable thing will be consoled. Because in that kingdom, the increase of his government and peace will know no end. He will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom. He will establish it and he will uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever and ever and ever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Is that a story worth living? Would you pray with me? Our great God, it's easy for us to look at the brokenness in the world, the injustice and the oppression and the darkness that we see, and to despair. 
It's easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking that you're absent or disinterested or that you don't care. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to be encouraged by the fact that you hate the brokenness of this world. And not only do you hate it, you have acted decisively to end it. You have sent King Jesus to us, and he entered the darkness, and he was oppressed. And he shed his blood that the cause of our inconsolable things would be dealt with. Father, help us live in light of the story where his kingdom is increasing eternally in size and in peace. Help us entrust ourselves to that story, to live in light of it, and to cultivate longing for our true home. In Christ's name. Amen.